Well, please uh, turn back to uh, John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and uh, we're looking at essentially verses 18 onwards, but uh, we've read from verse 10 uh, to get the context of where we were last week. John 13, as we continue to share this meal with Jesus and his disciples, this meal uh, in the last hours of his life. Let me start with this vision. In my dream I was carried away to a great and high mountain where I saw the great city, the goal of all men's hopes and desires, the end of our salvation, the holy city of God, the new Jerusalem. And around the city, as around the earthly Jerusalem, there ran a great high wall. And there were twelve gates in that wall, north and east and south and west. And each one was a pearl. And at each gate stood one of the great angels. And upon those gates of pearl were inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, from Reuben to Benjamin. And the walls of the great city stood on twelve massive foundation stones. And upon those stones were inscribed the names of the twelve apostles. And in my exaltation and the thrilling senses that were welling up within me, I walked around the perimeter of that great city and I read their names, Peter and James and John. But there was one name missing and I looked in vain for that name and that name was Judas. The longest night in the history of the world was coming to an end. The night was passing away. The day is about to come. And in my vision, as I looked off to the east towards the mountains, I saw the faintest hint of that day that was to come. The massive walls of the great city and the towers and the pinnacles of the temple were emerging from the shadows. And in the half-light, in the half-night, I saw a solitary figure coming down from just outside this great city, winding his way down the path toward the valley. And as he gets to the bridge, he pauses and he looks back towards the holy city. And then he turns and begins again, but halts once more and turns and again looks at the massive walls. Turns his head once more, keeps going. And in his hand I see a rope. And up the slopes of Olivet he goes and through the gates of Gethsemane. And then I see him passing under some trees and I see him go himself up into one of the trees, the trees of a gnarled olive, the branches of a gnarled olive tree. He draws himself up. Perhaps he is the gardener come to trim or perhaps harvest the olives. But in a moment his body appears again, plummeting down through the branches of the tree. But his body does not reach the ground. It stops mid-air and it swings slowly to and fro at the end of a rope. That is the vision of Clarence Edward McCartney, a vision of the figure who haunts this chapter of the Bible, John 13, the vision of Judas Iscariot. John 13, as we saw last week, captures the last hours of two men, Judas and Jesus. Last week we saw in those early verses of the chapter Jesus unveiled to us his heart, unveiled to us and tonight we will see Judas's heart. The two hearts are as different as you could get, as different as day is tonight. Jesus' heart, as we saw last week, filled with selfless, humble love. Judas's heart consumed by selfish, prideful emptiness. 
It is a horrible sight. And tonight as we continue this meal uh, with Jesus and his closest disciples, just hours before his death, his death on the hill of Calvary, we will see what happens when Jesus' heart meets Judas's heart. Now remember the scene. We're in the upper room. All, all that has led up so far in John's Gospel has stopped. All the signs, all the miracles, all the public ministry has ended. He has shut the door. He will speak privately to his closest friends. And as he does, he reveals his heart perhaps more clearly than any other part of Scripture. Do you remember it in verse 1 of John 13? Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. That's the heart we saw last week. Humble, servant-hearted love. That's been the dominant theme of the chapter so far. It was this stunning act of humility that we saw Jesus partake in as he bent low and washed the feet of his disciples one after another. Just a hint of what he was to do some hours later, not only for the disciples but for the whole world on the cross. And as he finished washing their feet, verse 15, he speaks to them with bold joy saying, this is why I've done this. I'm showing you what it means to be a human. I'm showing you a whole new way to live. This is where joy is found. This is where blessing is found. I've set you an example. But as he comes to the next phrase in verse 18, I suspect his voice changes. The sad refrain that has echoed all the way through this chapter comes out again. We heard it way back in verse 2. We, we hear it again in verse 10 when he says, You are clean, but not all of you. And now in verse 18 he says it again, the smile and the joy disappears. I'm not referring to all of you. He who shares my bread has lifted his heel against me. Three times in our passage Jesus echoes these words, someone at this very table is going to betray me. Here in verse 18 he's quoting Psalm 41, a psalm where King David speaks of one who sits at his table, a close friend, who even as they eat and drink together is plotting his downfall, planning to betray the king. The disciples hear this echo again and again and they're anxious to know who it is. Who would do this? Who would betray Jesus? We know who Jesus means. We've been told way back in verse 2, it's Judas. And if you're a Christian, you know the story well. You know Judas is the fall guy, the betrayer. And the rest of us, a bit like the disciples, can breathe a sigh of relief. It's not me, it's not them, it's, it's him. But John doesn't let us off that easily. This fisherman uh, come poet has put this story here for a very deliberate reason and he waits and pauses over Judas's actions to make a very important point. I'm not sure if you've ever hoped to be uh, likened to one of the disciples. If, if someone was to say, you're a bit like, which of the disciples would, would you hope they would say? Perhaps it's Peter with his boldness and passion. Even if it's in the wrong direction, you think, I'd love to have a bit of Peter in me. Or perhaps it's Andrew uh, that we meet way back in John chapter 1. And the very first thing he does is to run and tell his brother, we've found the Lord. Or perhaps you feel a bit more like Thomas that before you came to Jesus there were many doubts and maybe even there are still now. But I doubt there is anyone here who would want to be associated with Judas. I mean, he's out on a limb, isn't he? He's one of a kind 
selling Jesus, the one who is worth more than all the universe he created for some 30 pieces. Scary. An extreme case, surely. A betrayer. But before we point the finger at Judas, realise what is being revealed to us here in this chapter. His heart is our heart. What does the word betrayer mean? Well, literally, it means to deliver, to get something off your hands, to, to rid yourself of an obligation, to take someone and remove their presence from your life. It, it's the word the Bible uses with uh, Joseph, where as his brothers ditch him, get rid of him, this annoying, pesky younger brother. They betray him. That's what Judas is doing here. He's happy to have Jesus as, as a teacher, as a guru, as a leader. I mean, Jesus has said that's who he is in verse 14, but he's much more than that. He is Lord and King as well, as he says in verse 14. And Judas cannot cope with that. And so he betrays him. He makes plans to remove Jesus' control from his life. And if you're listening carefully, you'll realise that the Bible says again and again that is the essence of sin. To say to God, I don't need you. I don't want your control in my life. I don't mind having you around as a teacher, as a guide, as an advice giver, as a wise counsel, but, but Lord, no. No one tells me what to do. That's the essence of sin and it is to betray God. It's a picture that Jesus gives us in Luke 15 of, of the prodigal son who basically says to his father, look, I want all of this, all the good stuff, all the money, all the stuff that's coming to me and none of you. That's betrayal, declaring autonomy from God. And it's not just Judas's problem, is it? The great problem we have in the Bible is it makes clear that God is not just our teacher, he is king. As Philippians 2, which we read last week, says, that the one who demonstrated this servant-hearted love, who bent low, is the one before whom every knee will bow. He is the king. And so sin is betrayal against the king. It is getting rid of his control over us and that is what Judas is doing here. That is his heart and that is the human heart, is it not? Well, how do you think God responds to betrayal? On the scale that that we as humans commit, on the scale that Judas is committing here in the upper room, rejecting his presence, rejecting the power God has over him, the God who gives him life and breath and everything else, well, you see his response in verse 21. Jesus was troubled in spirit. It's the same phrase that he uses uh, some uh, chapters earlier as he stands by the graveside of his good friend Lazarus. As he confronts the death and the grief of that scene, his whole spirit is shaken. Literally the word used in that chapter is the very guts of God are churning up. That's what's happening here. And you can understand that when when you've been betrayed, that there'd be that sort of reaction, wouldn't you? Of course, your whole guts, your whole spirit is churned up. But look again in verse 21. This troubled spirit, this emotional response, it's not just because of the act of betrayal. He is troubled for the betrayer. His heart is churned up for the one who is about to hand him over to death. That's God's heart. The heart we have sung of tonight, deep, deep love, vast, unmeasured. 
He is heartbroken for his enemy. That is what is troubling his heart. Heartbroken for Judas. In verse 22, the disciples remain unaware of the betrayer's identity, but they're desperate to find out, who is it? You know, Peter, typical Peter, sort of eggs John on, go and and ask him, who is it? In Matthew's Gospel, Judas himself chips in, surely not I, Lord. And amongst them, he does seem the most unlikely. The commentators and the historians tell us that he would have been the most educated of the lot of a higher social standing, the gentleman amongst a bunch of roughnecks. He was from a different region. They they were all fishermen and the like from Galilee. He was from Kyria, more your S10 kind of neighbourhood. And so here they are in the upper room with not a clue that he is the one. And here again you see Jesus' heart. In this small room, each, each of them leaning against each other. I'm not sure if you've ever seen a picture of the, the Last Supper, that Da Vinci painting where they're all politely sitting together up at the table like that. That's not the picture here at all. They are leaning against each other. In fact, the picture is of Judas and John leaning against Jesus' chest. Close as you can get. If there'd been even the slightest hint from Jesus that Judas was the one, they would have picked it up. Jesus knows Judas's heart, but no one else does. Why? Because even now Jesus is pursuing Judas's heart. Even now there is no rejection of Judas, only this constant offer of fellowship. As he walked around and bent his knee before each of the disciples, remember he would have done that before Judas as well. Can you imagine that moment? They both knew what was coming. Remember the words he said in verse 10, you are clean but not all of you. I imagine him looking at Judas at that moment and saying, my friend, not all of you, you know this is a good time to respond. I mean, even the way the table is set up, this closeness of them, the way they are sitting. John and Judas right there. It's as if Jesus had walked into the meal that night and he said to Judas, I want you to sit next to me. We've got stuff to talk about. He's going for his heart right up to the end. And then it comes. In verse 25, John, as he leans back and he says, Who is it, Lord? Jesus responds. Loud enough, I I expect, for only Judas to hear. He says, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. It's an amazing act of fellowship. In their culture, to, to dip bread or a morsel of food in the sauce like this and to hand it to someone is an act of faithfulness and love and loyalty. You are my friend. He's holding out his friendship, holding out his love to Judas. Take it, friend. This is the way back. But the moment passes. Judas does take the bread, but not the love. He makes his choice. Get out of my life, Jesus. Betrayal. He gets up, went out, and as verse 30 says, it was night. No kidding. Let me ask you, do you see yourself in the rejection here? Do you see yourself in the picture of Judas' heart? You should because it is the human heart. If you're not a Christian tonight, if you are someone who lives life independent of God, independent of his love and his rule, saying I want all of this, life and breath and everything else, but none of you, then you have Judas' heart. 
And if you're a Christian, as the vast majority of us probably are, if you've accepted him as Lord, but you know that there are parts of your life where the picture here in verse 30 is still true, then feel the weight of this picture. Parts of your life where you still declare autonomy from God, areas where you've fenced him off. If you see your life as a a series of of rooms and you know there are rooms where he has not gone in, sort of a bit like a teenager where, where you sort of say, this is my room, this is my area, you're not allowed in here. Are there parts of your life like that? Whole rooms of your life untouched by his love, unwashed by his blood, cut off from his rule. Perhaps it's unresolved anger, a heart that bears a grudge won't forgive. I suspect there's many like that here. I remember myself earlier as a Christian, there were some eight years where I refused to forgive another person. Eight years. Stubbornly, no. That's me saying to God, that's my room. I'm not allowed in here. What about lust? Struggling with broken sexual relationships struggling with pornography, whatever it might be, and and although God can say to you again and again, this is not the way, you say, no, I'm not listening. Or crippling guilt, perhaps refusing to hear the words that Jesus says in verse 10, you are clean. Are there parts of your life that he has not touched? Perhaps you became a Christian sometime later and, and your working life hasn't changed it at all from before you were a Christian to after. You've said, no, no, that's my area. Finances, relationships, it can be all sorts of things. The Lord Jesus, the humble servant that we meet here in John 13, the one before whom every knee will bow, claims complete ownership of your whole life, every room. He claims it because he made you and he claims it because he loves you. He says to you, unless I wash you, you can have no part with me. Let me in. And so tonight know this, whether it is one room or the whole house that you have yet to let Jesus into, it is time. See the tragedy of Judas here in this picture, the tragedy of refusing God's love. It does not end well. It is suicide to reject him. Judas went out and it was night. So there's Judas' heart, selfish, prideful and full of betrayal. It is the human heart, a heart that produces a world like ours. A world where uh, I read uh, this week of a man who can convince himself that it's a good idea, in fact a great idea, to light a fire that will spread at such speed and heat and power that it will consume more than 200 lives of men, women and children in Australia. Someone did that. A world where a man like Sir Alan Stanford can become so consumed by his own greed that he he brings an entire nation down with him. Did you read about that this week? And a world more worried about how his fraud affects a game like cricket than the thousands of Antiguans that will lose their livelihood because of it. This is a world with a heart like Judas. And it's easy to think of this firebug in Australia or Alan Stanford or even Judas as the exceptions to the rule. But the Bible won't let us pretend like that. The dark heart we see here in John 13 is our own heart. We are by nature Judas's. We are his brother. 
To live any other way other than Judas takes a miracle. We need something or someone to break in and take this poisonous heart out of us and give us a new one. And that for me is the wonder of the gospel. The wonder of the gospel that Jesus has, God has promised to do exactly this through Jesus. Hear this promise he makes centuries and centuries before Judas. He says in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will do that, says God. That's God's response to betrayal. God's glorious response is to say, my heart beats stronger than yours. And the world was about to see the full extent of his heart's powerful love. Some hours later, he would wash us clean by his blood as he promised to do in Ezekiel and he would give us a new heart by his spirit. I remember uh, speaking to a, a man once uh, in a previous church who'd had a heart transplant and he, he was telling me about the whole process of recuperating after this massive, massive operation, how, how his body had to relearn how to function, how everything in his body w- wanted this new heart out, rejecting it as something foreign, something that didn't make sense, something unnatural. Well, that's the picture here. When God gives us a new heart, everything about it is different. But God, by his spirit, gives us not only this new heart, but the ability to learn to live in this new way. It's his spirit's job. A spirit who says to his children with this new heart, this is how you live. You see it there in verse 34, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Those who have been cleansed by Jesus' blood, who have this new heart by his spirit, this is the way he teaches us to live. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is what his spirit teaches us. We have a new heart with a new authority. If you're a Christian, set apart from Judas, a child of God as he calls the disciples here in our passage in verse 33 and 34, Your heart is shaped by the will of another, Jesus. He walks into your life and says, I'm the master and commander here and here's my command, a new command. Not a new suggestion, not a new lifestyle option, a command, love. And this heart has a new object, totally redirected, totally turned upside down from self to other. Jesus commands you to love one another, to love his children, his family. And when he first gave this command to these first disciples in the upper room, it was a command given in a culture with massive divisions, huge fault lines in society, master, slave, Jew, Gentile, man, woman. And as the first disciples began to obey this command, as the Spirit taught them to obey this command, the world was turned upside down. It was this new command that saw the Christian community conquer the whole world. Not some grand strategy, not some careful plan, loving one another as they had been loved. It's totally foreign to us. Left to ourselves, we seek our own, but when Christ comes, everything changes. 
And if you look around yourselves tonight, if you see the fellowship you are in, the people you are surrounded by, people who are so different to you, that is because of Jesus' love. That is what he has done on the cross. And the more our hearts submit to his authority, the more the object of our love is no longer ourselves as it is with Judas, but one another, the more diverse this community will become and the more fully extended our love will be. And the more that is true, the more Fullwood and Sheffield and the world will marvel at this community and know we are his. So let me say, don't underestimate the power of obeying this command, this simple but radical command and rejoice in the ways that we are already doing it together, in the simple ways that we are bending the knee before each other and serving each other in simple, practical ways. Think about the countless and varied acts of service that happen here week in, week out. Those who are on the flower rotor, those who clean the front of the church after each Sunday, those who tidy up after we've met like this, the team of cleaners who, who go throughout the church centre week in, week out, those who fold the sheets that you have in your hand, those who man the office on Sunday so people with questions can ask them, the gardeners, the coffee makers, the servers, the bell ringers, those who count the collection and have only just begun. Marvel at the ways that we are obeying this command. And then also rejoice in the ways that we don't just obey this command in terms of the practical help we can give each other, but our commitment to the long-term well-being of each other, our commitment to each other's long-term joy in Christ. That's where we really see this command obeyed. Committed to each other's passion for Jesus, each other's hope and godliness. Committed to keeping each other accountable, spurring each other on towards love and good deeds. We must obey Jesus' command to love each other like this with a long-term view to that end. And let me say, if you regard yourself as part of this church family, you need to know how primarily I think we obey a command like that in the long term. How is it that we actually are committed to each other's long-term joy in Christ in a very deliberate and personal way? Well, there's many ways, I suspect, but I put it to you that right at the heart of how we do it is your commitment to a small group. There are many ways that we can deliberately love each other in this long-term sense. We do it as we are right now. We do it through courses. We do it through spontaneous friendships. But I suspect right at the heart of it is small groups. I think it's where we most realistically obey a command like this rather than just pay it lip service. We cannot do verse 34 on the big scale. We cannot do it here tonight, I don't think. Not well. A handful of staff can't obey this command for every member of this community. It will not happen. A handful of staff cannot love you and know you the way you need to be known, the way this command says we should. In order for you to be cared for, 12 people can do that though. They can know you and you them. They can be there for you with practical love when needs come. They can be there when suffering comes. They can be there when you need someone to pull you back from a sin you are walking into. They can be there to spur you on towards love at work in your family. A small group will do that, or it should do that. And as I was writing those things this week, I got to thinking, well, I'm the small group minister guy. You expect me to say this? And almost wrote the lines, of course, small groups aren't the silver bullet, the, the magic solution to all these things so that we can obey this. 
But then of course they are. Jesus tells us to gather like this, to love one another deeply and from the heart. And if you're in a small group, think how miraculous that group really is. That here in a world where Judas's heart reigns, you are in a group of brothers and sisters who are committed to each other's good, who love each other and teach each other and rebuke each other and correct each other and comfort and carry, push each other on. Realise how miraculous that is. Let me also say it's why I intend to see the groups, small groups of this church change around every few years. Jesus commands you to love those around you and if you look around you tonight, there are a lot of others, aren't there? This is not a command to love the few, the ones that we are comfortable with, but to love many and deeply and well. And that takes time. Let me finish with this. This new heart that God gives us which is under a new authority, him, with a new object, one another, also has a new power to love as we are called to. God says to us, my heart beats stronger than yours. The power you need to love like me doesn't come from you, it comes from him. Two chapters later in John's Gospel, he will repeat this very same command, but there he will also tell us how we're going to do it. John 15 verse 9, he says, Abide in my love. Stay close to me, says Jesus. That's how you're going to do it. You know, when a baby is first conceived, its heart starts to beat about four to five weeks from that moment. The very moment that the heart is formed, it starts to beat. At that point, the baby is about the size of the tip of a pen. This tiny little heart. Imagine how small the heart is if the whole baby is the size of a tip of a pen. That little heart is kick-started by the mother's heart. Utterly dependent on this bigger, stronger heart to beat itself. That's how it is with us, God's children. That his heart beats is why ours does. That his spirit is in our hearts is why I can love as he has loved me. And so Jesus says, abide in me. If you do, there will be endless opportunities to love those around you and you will be blessed by every one of them. There will be endless resources for you to do just that. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me pray.